Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. All the major stories right now in the world continue to revolve around the coronavirus pandemic. And here in the United States, as the country gets ready to reopen the economy, states are already preparing test and trace programs that will help in the effort. Massachusetts, Utah, and North Dakota are among those working on a comprehensive strategy that includes increased testing and contact tracing that will monitor those that are infected and their close contacts. For more on this story and how technology will play a major role, we spoke to Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. There's a few states that are kind of on the front lines of trying to think of some next steps in terms of getting beyond sort of the current testing and disease crisis and looking at more preventative approaches to making sure that we tamp down that curve of COVID cases. So a few states that we looked at in our story were Utah, Massachusetts, and North Dakota. And we saw in Utah and Massachusetts in particular, there was a real focus on not just expanding testing capabilities, which as many people may know has been a real problem, not just kind of getting people tested, but getting them tested promptly enough that it matters for them in terms of dictating how they behave in society, right? But also kind of looking at this test and trace model. So once someone gets sick and they've been confirmed to have COVID-19, really making sure that you look at all of the possible ways they could have potentially spread this infection in the community, reaching out to people they were in touch with, and really following up. So if let's say I had contact with an infected person at my grocery store a week ago, I ran into this person and said hi, and they remember that interaction and recount it to someone with this public health department, then following up with me and saying, hey, you may have been in contact with someone who had COVID, and following up and saying, how are you feeling? Do you have symptoms? And not just following up that day, but really throughout time to make sure that you're really being comprehensive about your approach, saying, you know, you should probably self-isolate as a precaution, things like that. So this is work that is really, really resource intensive. So in Massachusetts, they want to hire about a thousand people. Utah took about 1,200 state employees and had them go over to kind of local health departments to help out with this work. But, you know, it's possible it could take a lot more people than that. I spoke with someone at Partners in Health, which is a group working with Massachusetts on this initiative. And, you know, the chief medical officer there said she wouldn't be mad if they had 40 or 50,000 people doing this work. And I think there's some really interesting ideas there, too, in terms of unemployment being such a huge problem these days. I think there's some interesting questions about can we get people back to work in a way that also resolves this crisis? I think it's an interesting idea. The other angle Mm -hmm. on this is the technological angle. There's some apps that are sprouting up so you can kind of be tracked on the app. I know some people would have a problem with being tracked in that way, but that's another part of this contact tracing. And I think there's some really interesting applications of technology here. We've seen that happen in other countries as well. What we saw in North Dakota was they took this app that they had been using to sort of you know, it's called the bison tracker and they used it. They were going to their championship football game in Texas and it was a way for fans to kind of track their progress on this long drive over to Texas. And they said, this might be helpful for tracking COVID cases. So it's a way that people can opt into using this app. They can basically track their movements and then 
you know, if they turn out to be sick, they can actually, if they want to, use that information in conjunction with the public health officials and, and try to kind of get in touch with people they've maybe potentially been in contact with along their time and things like that. And I always love a good detail about a bison tracking app kind of being repurposed for public health. And reportedly, they had more than 10,000 downloads in the first 36 hours. So, I mean, that's great Mm -hmm. that people want to get in on that. But it is very much an opt-in type of situation when you're working. Even with hiring people to do like the tedious and time-intensive work manually and making phone calls and doing on that, even on that front, it's up to the person individually to follow the rules there on the other side as well. I do think what's interesting about it is we're seeing people feeling like at such odd ends about this crisis, feeling like... All they can really do is stay at home, you know, for those who are lucky enough to stay at home. And this provides a way to sort of be actively involved in this public health crisis. I also think it's worth noting that we've seen some of the big tech companies team up pretty recently and say we want to do this kind of work as well. And they may have a bigger reach. I think the effort that they are collaborating on could reach like, I think, a third of the population or something like that. So there are sort of some bigger kind of tools that might be able to be useful in this. Yeah. On that for an Apple and Google announced that they're trying to build software that they can put into the Android and iPhones that would help people track these encounters. And I think even in California, Governor Gavin Newsom said that he wants to incorporate some type of smartphone contact tracing as part of his strategy to lift these statewide stay-at-home orders. So this is going to be something you're going to hear about a little bit more in the coming weeks, just as states and cities are really desperate right now to get things back open and pumping again. So everybody's looking at a lot of different avenues. Antibody testing was another thing that we're hearing a lot about. So these are all different things that we're looking at to try and track this so that people can stay away from hotspots or help avoid creating new hotspots. What we're talking about is really preventative strategies that may not translate in the exact same ways to areas that have really known widespread hotspots. So I'm thinking of places like New York may have a different path forward than some places that have been sort of somewhat less hard hit as far as we know, based on the numbers coming out of those places. I think it's also important to consider sort of the fact that testing has been a real bottleneck. And even these ambitious plans coming out of these states, we may not see that at least initially and, you know, hopefully in the long run, overcome some of these bottlenecks. So, you know, I talked to the Broad in Massachusetts. They took a lab that had been doing DNA testing work and they repurposed it to do COVID-19 testing kind of in March. And I think what's really interesting, and I talked to the lab director there, is I said, you know, but you guys want to expand so much. You're doing 2,000 tests a day. You want to do 10,000 what's the barrier to getting there? And she said, you know, we don't have enough of these supplies. And she was hopeful that they would, by the way. But I think that's something we've seen for weeks now, for some time now, really be a problem. If you don't have enough swabs to take people's samples, you can't do enough testing. And I think that's a really important challenge that you shouldn't underestimate. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We're all looking forward to how and when we can get back to work and get back to normal. And while we still have yet to hit this peak number of cases in the U.S., some are hoping that testing for antibodies in the blood could help get us back. If you have antibodies to COVID-19, it means you already had the disease and could be immune, at least in the short term. There's still a lot of questions yet to be answered about this type of testing, but it could help. So for more, we spoke to Rachel Becker, reporter at CalMatters. 
Antibodies are immune proteins that attack viruses and other pathogens, and they form as part of the immune response to a virus like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease known as COVID-19. And so the hope is that by testing for antibodies, researchers, public health workers will be able to identify those who've already had the virus and who have fought it off and survived. There are a couple ways these antibody tests could be used. Epidemiologically, they're really valuable for tracking the spread of the virus, understanding the true fatality rate, and for being able to see where it's spread, who gets sickest, who doesn't, and why. But then there's this other conversation that's happening that you just mentioned about using antibody tests to try to maybe selectively lift the shelter-in-place order uh, that we have here in California and that's cropping up across the country. You know, maybe folks who have antibodies should be sent to the front lines. That's definitely a, a possibility that's been floated. But healthcare professionals, uh, scientists that I've spoke to urge caution. There's still a lot we don't know about the immune response to uh, SARS-CoV-2, to the novel coronavirus. Uh, we don't know how strong the antibody response is. We don't know what level of antibodies are considered protective. We don't know if everybody makes the right kinds of antibodies to be protective. And we don't know how long that protection lasts. So there are just still so many unknowns to, to start putting people's safety on the line. Testing, testing, testing. It's all about testing. We're still barely, it seems like we're getting, starting to get a handle on actually testing people for the virus. But on the antibody testing side, there are a few tests that are there. And I know in some areas they're starting those tests on people, but we're still a little ways from getting this ramped up. Yeah, there have definitely been some studies that are going on across the country. CDC has one. Other research groups, Vitalent Research Institute and others are using antibody tests to, again, you know, trace the virus um, as an academic question. Stanford, though, recently launched a lab-developed test on April 6th at Stanford HealthCare, and the idea for that test is to determine which healthcare workers might be at lower risk for working with COVID-19 patients. And I say, you know, lower risk because we don't know exactly how much protection antibodies confer at this time. Going back to whether, you know, you get COVID-19, you get over it, and if you have this immunity towards it, the, enough antibodies to help you throughout that. There have been some studies, some preliminary findings that I think they've done these studies in monkeys. They were infected. Maybe a month later, they were still immune to it. Uh, tell us a little bit about what we know on that. And I know we don't know much. It's just this is, we're trying to piece it together as we go. Yeah, we know so little about reinfection still. There have been some reports of people potentially getting reinfected with uh, the novel coronavirus, but there is some doubt that the folks who were reported as getting reinfected had actually cleared the virus from their systems. It may have been more of a flare-up of the virus as, as they recovered and not reinfection. But researchers have done some studies in monkeys where they infected the monkeys and then, you know, watched their antibodies go up. And then a month later, they tried to reinfect the monkeys and the monkeys were not susceptible to reinfection. So a bunch of infectious disease experts wrote an article kind of just assessing the state of coronavirus research. And they wrote that that was reassuring. So We'll need a lot more of these studies. We'll need a long-term follow-up of people who've recovered to really understand it. But as those uh, the infectious disease experts wrote, it was reassuring. 
about short-term immunity that's different from long-term immunity. And SARS too, I mean, like a loose cousin of COVID-19, they've done some long-term follow-ups on people that survived that. And they've seen stuff that suggests some of their antibodies lasted for about two years or so. But one of the worst case scenarios that everybody we, do, we want to avoid are, you know, this false sense of security from it. These tests are so new and we don't know much about the uh, SARS-CoV-2 yet is that, you know, there could be some false positive test results, things like that. And we don't want to get some of these types of test results and then send people back into the workforce and have other outbreaks. Exactly. Exactly. And um, it's, it's possible with a poorly designed test that it'll pick up antibodies to other coronaviruses, you know, not just SARS or MERS, but the, also the mild coronaviruses that folks might get seasonal colds from. Uh, and so a poorly designed test, it's possible that it could pick up those antibodies and then you'd get that false positive. And that false positive is the worst case scenario where folks will think that they're protected and that they're not. Uh, this could, you know, if, if, this shelter in place order is, is lifted too soon on the basis of imperfect tests, it could allow for uh, the spread to ramp back up, which is really a, a would be a terrible thing for public health and for the hospitals that are already doing the best they can to care for and to cope with the patients they're seeing right now. We did mention a bit ago about how there are some uh, places that are starting to do this type of testing. Uh, either Stanford or the CDC, but do we have a sense of when these might be able to be ramped up and, and more people could start getting these type of tests? It's really an open question and it's an important question. Stanford just launched it for healthcare workers. One test has received emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. But given the problems we've seen with the supply chain and with ramping up of the uh, the diagnostic tests that look for the virus the called the PCR tests, I think it's really an open question whether antibody tests will be able to ramp up quickly and really, especially at the scale, we would need to start saying, okay, like folks can start reentering the workforce, life can start going back to, to normal. Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. A little bit of political news this week. Joe Biden has picked up a pair of crucial endorsements in his run for president. President Barack Obama and Senator Bernie Sanders have both come out in support of Biden. In his endorsement, Obama also addressed the coronavirus pandemic and called out the GOP and the administration for lack of action. For more on what this means for the transition to the general election, we spoke to Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. President Obama was obviously effusive in his praise for his former vice president, but he also took the notable step of making sure to contrast Joe Biden and with uh, President Donald Trump, that he said, look at the pandemic happening right now. Who do you want in the White House leading something like this? You don't want somebody like Trump. And he didn't really explicitly mention President Trump by name, but he certainly drew that comparison. He said, this administration is not prepared. Joe Biden is prepared to lead the country. He was very forceful in that. You know, He said, the crisis has reminded us that government mm -hmm. matters. And it reminded us that good government matters, facts and science matters. He went down a big list of things, as you mentioned, not calling out President Trump, but basically calling out how much he was lagging early on. And he said that Joe has the character and experience to lead us through one of the darkest times and heal us through a long recovery. So people have said that this was kind of in the works. They knew that once Bernie Sanders got out that it would only be a matter of time before Obama stepped in. But this is also his kind of reemergence into the public, into the political arena. He had stayed pretty quiet throughout the entire nominating process. He stayed incredibly quiet with the exception, I can, I can think of one or two 
forums he appeared at that he made references to the primary, never mentioned a candidate specifically by name. But now he's emerging, and it's at an important moment for uh, Vice President Biden, too, because Biden and his campaign have predictably, not their fault, but have struggled to break through the news right now because there is a unprecedented historic pandemic going on in this country, and the presidential campaign has kind of taken the back seat. For two days in a row now, Joe Biden has gotten an incredibly prominent endorser, first Senator Sanders and now President Obama, that have people talking about a campaign again, which is important to remind people that there is still a presidential race going on. It was a 12-minute video, and he endorsed Joe Biden, obviously. He also talked about coronavirus a lot. He said that Joe helped him manage H1N1 and prevent the Ebola epidemic from becoming the type of pandemic we're seeing now. So he gave him an endorsement on that front also, uh, in handling these crises. And he also endorsed the former vice president's handling of the economic recovery. When President Obama first took office, they had to handle a recession. And that probably will play in largely into the next election is how can the country economically recover from this crisis, from this pandemic? It's different underlying reasons for why we have an economic shortfall right now, certainly. But that'll be a major talking point for this election is how does the country move forward from this virus and how does it recover economically? And that's something that President Obama spoke to for Vice President Biden as well. What does this all do for party unity? Because when Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden, they went back and forth. They talked about how they've disagreed before, but they're friends. He implored a lot of his supporters to help out Joe Biden. And the same thing for President Obama. He also praised Bernie Sanders. He called him an American original and pleaded for everybody to jump behind the Joe Biden campaign. So I know they're very important endorsements, but do they help for party unity? Are are the Bernie Sanders supporters going to come over and support Joe Biden? I've always been a skeptic of how much any individual endorsement matters, especially in a primary. But something like this, you got to figure if there's two endorsements in the Democratic primary that are going to matter, it was Bernie Sanders. And it is now Barack Obama is still one of the most widely beloved figures among Democrats. I think he's second only to his wife, former First Lady Michelle Obama, the two widely beloved figures. And Bernie Sanders is probably right up there as long, too. And it's important that former President Obama and Biden's campaign have made overtures to Bernie Sanders to say, look, we hear you. We're not casting you aside. We're not ignoring you. 2016 was an incredibly contentious, so we shall say, primary process. And everyone is doing their best on the Democratic side right now to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. There was even some people in the Sanders campaign, some officials there that said, I don't endorse Joe Biden. He doesn't endorse Medicare for all and things like that. So it might be tough for all of the supporters to come through. But then again, you have to position it as what is the other choice? The other choice is President Trump. So this now throws us full on into kind of this general election mode. I think it was Jonathan Martin from the New York Times said, Democrats aren't in disarray. It's not been since 2004 that the Democratic Party has rallied behind somebody this early. So that's kind of an interesting thing to note is that it is very early in this, even though we have a pandemic going on and campaigning has completely changed. They do have of their presumptive nominee. I think it was something like 85% of Sanders supporters ultimately voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. That's a pretty high number, but can you chip away at that 15% basically? Can you get that number down to 10% of people who voted for somebody else in the primary to ultimately support the nominee? That's the goal with these endorsements, and that's what they're trying to do by doing it so early. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.